Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Greetings, loved ones, and welcome to episode 35 of Criminal Broads, a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I'm Tori Telfer, your host. I'm a true crime writer, the author of a book on female serial killers, and currently working on a book about female con artists. And I'm also the host of the new CBS All Access podcast, Why Women Kill, Truth, Lies, and Labels, which you can check out today wherever you get your podcasts. It's a six-part series on archetypes of female killers. Do not worry, it is not replacing criminal rods. Um, Before we get into today's story, I have some big news for you all. Now, this is personal news, and of course this is not a podcast about my life, but this piece of news does affect my listeners, uh, so I wanted to tell you that I am expecting a baby! <laughs> I'm expecting a baby at the end of the fall. I hope to be welcoming a very cute and hopefully chubby and squishy baby into my arms. So I'm going to be taking a criminal broads maternity leave for obvious reasons, for the next couple of months. Um, Well, I'm going to be doing episodes through October, and then I'll be taking some time off to put together a crib and finish my book and then meet this little guy or gal. So I just want to say up front, thank you for being such cool listeners and so supportive of the podcast and so enthusiastic, and I will keep you updated as best I can. And, um, you know, this isn't goodbye. I'll see you for a couple more episodes. But I, I just wanted to let you know, uh, give you some advance warning that that's coming. So, okay, another thing, uh, listeners in New York, I would love if you would grab your tickets to the first ever live Criminal Broads event, which is happening on October 30th. I'm hosting an event with my friend Rebecca from the podcast Dialogue. That's Dialogue. Uh, It's an event about female cult leaders, October 30th, 7 p.m. at Caveat in New York City, and tickets are $14, and I'm going to put a link for them in the show notes. I would love to see you there, and I will need my Criminal Broads listeners in the audience because I am positive that I'm going to be talking about Anne Hamilton Byrne, and we do not like her, so I need you there to go boo whenever I mention her blonde wigs and her penchant for dressing all her children in identical creepy clothes. (laughs) All right, let's dive into today's story. The overarching theme of today's episode is nuance, or as Avril Lavigne once put it, why'd you have to go and make things so complicated? We're going to be talking about a woman who is very quickly turned into a symbol, and while symbols are necessary and helpful and beautiful and inspiring, They're also an awful lot of pressure for regular old humans to be. So today's story, I think, is very relatable. Uh, I think you will feel for this woman in all her glory and in all her flaws, and I hope you enjoy it. So let's travel back to the 1970s to small-town North Carolina, where we are going to meet our criminal broad, who is also, strangely, our heroine. Let's go. Oh, 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 oh. 
There were never very many women in the Beaufort County Jail. Except for the night of August 27, 1974. That night, there should have been two. There should have been two women in the county jail that night because at around 4 a.m., a policeman was bringing in a very drunk lady who was supposed to spend the night there and sober up. He walked her towards the cell where the only other female inmate of the jail was supposed to be sleeping, Joanne Little, a young black woman, 20 years old. As the policeman approached the cell, he saw no sign of Joanne, but he did see a man's feet just lying there on the ground. He walked closer. He looked inside. There was no woman in the cell, but there was a man, a white man, naked from the waist down, lying on the floor in a puddle of blood. It was the night jailer, Clarence Alleygood. In his hand, he held his own murder weapon, an ice pick. It was as though he'd tried to tear it from his body in a last-ditch effort to survive. He'd been stabbed eleven times, around his temple and in his heart. Joanne Little, who was supposed to be in the cell that night, was nowhere to be seen. Joanne Little never had any reason to think she'd become a celebrity or a killer. She was born in 1953 in the little town of Washington, North Carolina, a town that called itself the original Washington, since it was named before Washington, D.C., but a town that everyone else called Little Washington, since it was so much smaller than D.C. Joanne was one of nine children. Her family was very poor. On her birth certificate, her name was Joan, J-O-A-N, but she preferred to pronounce it Joanne. Her biological father left when Joanne was just a kid and moved to New York City, so she was raised by her stepfather and her mother, who was obsessed with spells and was always consulting a local conjurer to find out what the future might hold. For Joanne, the future didn't seem to hold anything special. By the time she was 15, she dropped out of school, resisted her mother's efforts to put her back into school, and ran away to Philadelphia to crash with relatives. She always wanted to be a city girl, her mother said later. By the time Joanne turned 18, she was back in Little Washington, working whatever job she could get. She worked as a waitress, a cook, she got a job in a shirt factory. She even spent some time in construction, a typically male job. But the people of Little Washington had started to doubt her when she dropped out of school, and they weren't about to give this grown-up Joanne a second chance now. She was running with a bad crowd. They didn't like it. She was dating the owner of a pool hall, and she worked at a disco near a marine base. And there were rumors that she'd take her girlfriends from the disco and run them over to the marine base for sex work, acting, for all intents and purposes, like a pimp. She also started shoplifting from whoever she could, and she wasn't afraid to steal from Little Washington's black citizens, which her community hated. There was a rumor that she'd stolen a TV from her own aunt. The consensus was clear. She was a bad girl. No good. And the gossip was confirmed on January 15, 1974, when she and her little brother were caught in an act of burglary and locked up. 
At trial, her little brother turned on her in exchange for a reduced sentence. Joanne was left to fend for herself, and she was punished harshly with a sentence of seven to ten years. the 1970s, the North Carolinian criminal justice system was, to be frank, a mess. The state had the biggest death row population in the nation, and an insane old-school law saying that if a judge declared that a fugitive was an outlaw, anyone in the state could shoot that fugitive on sight. Plus, while desegregation had technically gone into effect the year after Joanne was born, the state wasn't exactly progressive. North Carolina had a sketchy history of prosecuting politically active black citizens, and most of the people on death row were black or Native American. Prisons were overcrowded. Corruption ran rampant. At a rally, a pastor told a crowd of 5,000 people that North Carolina was, quote, one of the most, if not the most, repressive states in the nation. Enter Joanne. On June 6, 1974, she was flung into the Beaufort County Jail with the dubious honor of being its only female inmate. She should have been transferred to the women's prison in Raleigh, but because she was waiting for her lawyer to appeal her sentence, and her lawyer wouldn't appeal her sentence until she paid him $125, she was kept in the county jail for the next two and a half months. Life as the only female inmate in a North Carolina county jail was far from pleasant. No one ever changed her bedsheets. Instead of a prison matron, there was a video camera, which the sheriff thought would help keep the infrequent female residents safe. But in reality, it kept them under constant scrutiny. The guards weren't supposed to watch the video monitors that focused on Joan, but anyone who did could watch the girl as she washed her face, as she undressed for bed, as she dressed again in the morning, as she showered, even as she used the toilet. At one point, Joanne used one of her bedsheets to block the camera, but guards took the sheet away. One guard, the night guard, was Clarence Alleygood, a big, strong man of 62 who'd worked as a truck driver and as a farmer before getting a job at the jail. He was known to be a little bit dumb and a whole lot racist, Later, when different theories emerged about what exactly happened that night, his friends and even his wife said more or less that Clarence couldn't have done anything wrong to Joan because Clarence was too racist against black women to bother them. Now, that wasn't really true. Clarence liked black women in his creepy way. He liked to talk to them. He had a history of talking to them. And when Joanne came into the jail, he started doing her favors. He brought her cigarettes, late-night sandwiches when she was hungry. He let her use the phone in his office when she asked. Clearly, he didn't mind having her around. The problem was, when Clarence brought a woman a sandwich, he expected something in return. On the night of August 27th, Clarence showed up in front of Joanne Little's cell. Ironically, the video camera that had given her so much grief was nowhere to be found that night. It was broken, and it had been sent off to be fixed. 
Clarence began taking off his shoes and then his pants. He told Joanne that he'd been nice to her, and now she was supposed to be nice to him. She asked him not to come into her cell. She said no, but he opened the door anyway, and she saw that he was carrying an ice pick. That was the same ice pick that was found in his cold, dead hand a few hours later. The wound that had killed him, said the doctor who examined his body, was the one that was three to four inches deep and went straight down into the left ventricle of his heart. Church lady, can you spare her Cause glory hallelujah ain't enough for her wrongs. Church lady, can she borrow some time? Cause she needs to sit down and reflect on her behind. In the night, Joanne Little ran as fast as she could, barefoot, down the street, clutching the massive ring of keys that she'd taken from Clarence. She threw the keys away by the railroad tracks and hid any time she saw a car coming. Eventually, she made it to her cousin's house and rapped frantically on his window. Her cousin, Raymond, let her in. She was out of breath. I think I killed a man, she said. Terrified, Raymond told Joanne that she couldn't stay with him. She was on edge, almost hysterical, and when she saw a police car driving by, she took off running again. She ran, 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 until she found an old man getting drunk on his front porch in the wee small hours of the morning. She begged him to let her stay with him for a while. He agreed. A few hours later, when the police showed up, she tried to run again, but the old man told her to hide under an old feather mattress in one of his bedrooms. They were going to shoot her, first sight, he told a journalist later. They were going to kill her. That's the truth. Joanne stayed with him for six days. The police returned four more times, but they never found her, even though at one point a policeman actually sat down on the bed where she was hiding. After leaving the old man's house, Joanne ran and hid, ran and hid. When one of her friends saw her, the friend remembered that Joanne's eyes were so swollen from crying that they looked like they were going to pop out of her face. Joanne knew, everyone in the city knew, that she'd probably be shot on sight if she were found by the cops or by anyone who didn't think she was innocent. One local judge tried to get her declared an outlaw so that she could officially be shot on sight under that archaic state law, but even though that was unsuccessful, it didn't really matter. There were people out there who believed that Clarence Alleygood was a fine man who'd been brutally murdered for no reason at all. There were people out there who believed that Joanne Little was a cold-blooded murderess who'd killed him just to get out of jail. Even the black communities of Little Washington weren't so sure they wanted to help Joanne get away. Many of them had turned against her years before, turned against her because they saw her as a fast girl living a wayward life. She'd stolen from them. Why should they care about her? Yes, public opinion on all sides seemed to be mounting against Joanne until a civil rights activist named Golden Franks grew interested in her case. Sure, he said, Joanne hadn't been the most perfect, innocent person in the world, but she deserved the right to a fair defense, at least. She deserved not to be shot on sight. 
Slowly, Golden managed to get in touch with Joanne, and he eventually brought her to a safe house. When Joanne met Golden in person, she began to cry, and she kept saying over and over, I'm sorry he's dead. I'm sorry he's dead. Golden soothed her and then introduced her to a bombastic white lawyer named Jerry Paul, who had a long history of loud courtroom antics and of successfully defending black clients. And so, on September 4th, eight days after her flight from jail, Joanne turned herself in. Let's take a quick break to hear from our three awesome sponsors who I am ranking from least to most spooky today. Is there something standing between you and your happiness? You and your goals? BetterHelp Online Counseling can help you out. It's a convenient, safe, and private way to connect with licensed professional counselors from your own home. You can talk with them through video, phone, chat, or even text. Super casual if you want casual. This is a really great option for you if you're looking for a specialist who's maybe not available in your area. BetterHelp has counselors specializing in trauma, in family conflicts, in LGBT matters, even in sleep. Perhaps best of all, BetterHelp is affordable, and my listeners can get 10% off their first month by going to betterhelp.com slash criminalbroads. You'll fill out a questionnaire and you'll get started. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash criminalbroads. Our second sponsor today is The Great Courses Plus. Do you need more strange historical content in your life? Yes, then you've got to check out this company, The Great Courses Plus. They offer courses on everything from forensic history to warrior queens to a creepy course I'm currently listening to called The Real History of Secret Societies, which is created in partnership with the History Network. It's basically a class on the Illuminati and other creepy culty things. The Great Courses Plus offers lecture series that you can watch on your phone or listen to just like a podcast, but unlike every single podcast in the world, each one of their courses is taught by an expert in their field. And now you can check all their courses out for free by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash broads and entering the code FREEMO, F-R-E-E-M-O, for a free month of listening. Again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash broads and enter code FREEMO, as in free month. And spookiest of all, Our third sponsor is Harlequin Suspense. I know some of you are big readers, and if you're anything like me, all you want to read come autumn are the sorts of nail-biting stories that pair perfectly with a crackling fire and a huge mug of apple cider and... (gasps) Is that a ghost in the attic? We can't be sure. We don't know if ghosts are real or not. This fall, Harlequin Suspense has rolled out a whole batch of brand new books for you. Domestic suspense, mystery, romantic suspense from popular authors and brand new debuts with chilling titles like The Stranger Inside and Guess Who? Check out these suspenseful titles and many more by going to bit.ly slash mustreadsuspense or just click on the link in my show notes. Again, that's bit.ly slash mustreadsuspense. Crackling fireplace and howling wind outside your window not included. 
church lady Sing her that song Sing her that song Nineteen seventy four sped into nineteen seventy five, and by the time her trial started in July, Joanne Little was a celebrity and a candidate for the electric chair. Her case had become an absolute obsession with anyone who was interested in civil rights, in women's rights, in prison reform, or in the intersection of all three. There was a movement around her, a big movement, the Free Joanne Little movement, with signs and t-shirts and supporters like Angela Davis. The movement even got its own anthem, an absolute banger of a song called Joanne Little by the singer Bernice Johnson Regan. The Southern Poverty Law Center had sent two million letters around the country to raise money for her defense, and even Rosa Parks herself ran a chapter of the Joanne Little Legal Defense Committee. Joanne's case resonated intensely, intimately, with anyone who knew what it was like to be in her shoes. Many women made no secret of the fact that they would have done what Joanne did in a heartbeat. During jury selection, one prospective female juror said that she'd, quote, do anything to protect herself against rape. Another said, bluntly, that if a man attacked her, quote, I would kill him. During the trial itself, a group of young women sat in the back of the courtroom with t-shirts that said things like, Power to the Ice Pick. Other supporters walked around outside with signs that read, Why have a trial? The criminal is dead. With the hundreds of thousands of dollars raised for Joanne's defense, her defense team was able to assemble a crack team of 35 people, along with a slew of cutting-edge courtroom techniques. They spent $20,000 on private investigators, $15,000 on polygraphs, $5,000 for counseling for Joanne, and they even used a new method for selecting jurors based on their psychological profiles, a method that cost $30,000 per profile. Meanwhile, Joanne had been speaking at rallies and women's luncheons to thunderous applause. At one rally, she said, When I came into prison, I was like a marshmallow. I was soft. When I came out, I was a bandit. I'm ready to strike back at any time. When she wasn't being applauded, though, she was dealing with an onslaught of death threats. There were plenty of people who didn't like the way the Joanne narrative was unfolding. And this was reflected in the charge against her, which was shockingly harsh. She was being charged with first-degree murder, which carried with it a mandatory death sentence in the state of North Carolina. Joanne was arguing self-defense, but if the jury decided that she was guilty, she herself, like Clarence, would die. different Joanne Littles emerged. The first was the Joanne of the prosecution, 
a conniving seductress with a long rap sheet who'd stolen the ice pick earlier that night when she was making a phone call, snuck the weapon into her cell, and then lured Clarence into her lair, promising him God knows what sort of sexual favors, only to strike him in the heart when he was, um, at his most vulnerable. This was the same Joanne who was whispered about by certain white communities in Little Washington. These communities told journalists that, well, how could she possibly have been raped when she was already so promiscuous? Look at her track record. She'd worked at a disco. She was practically a pimp. Was this really the sort of girl we want to defend as innocent? The second Joanne was the Joanne of the defense team a simple, shy girl who only ran away from jail because she thought she hadn't actually killed her attacker. This Joanne was so innocent and sweet that she wouldn't have ever left a dying man, even if he was her rapist. Her chief defense lawyer even argued, dramatically, that her case was, quote, "...chosen by God, the Great Spirit." in order to bring justice and enlightenment to the poor black female populations of the South. Now, the real Joanne was too complicated to be reduced to an archetype in the courtroom. She wasn't some pure, perfect being. Who is? She had a criminal history, and a whole lot of people thought she was bad news. But so what? She was living, breathing proof that you didn't have to be a perfect victim to be a victim. You didn't have to be some sort of Virgin Mary, never been touched, to deserve the right to not be raped. And being incarcerated certainly didn't mean that you deserved to be brutalized while you were already locked up. You could add up every single bad thing Joanne Little had ever done, and you'd never reach a point where she deserved to be assaulted by Clarence Alleygood. Her trial stretched on dramatically for weeks, with the two Joannes pitted against each other. The lawyers blustered and argued, even sometimes getting down on the floor to reenact the murder scene. Eventually, the first-degree murder charge against her was reduced to a second-degree charge, so the electric chair was now off the table. But still, the prosecution argued that she was a cold-blooded killer. But all their argumentation failed when the defense brought in two explosive witnesses— Two black women who'd also spent time at the Beaufort County Jail and who took the stand to testify that Clarence Alleygood had a long history of making sexual advances toward female prisoners. One of them had been so disgusted by the way that he talked to her that she'd tried to slash her wrists with the jagged end of a tube of toothpaste. The other mentioned that she'd heard Clarence ask Joanne if she missed her man. Another disgusting piece of evidence that was brought up was the fact that the dead man had been found with a smear of semen on his thigh. And Joanne herself testified in graphic detail about what exactly Clarence had forced her to do before she had a chance to wrench the ice pick away. The jury was convinced. They deliberated for just over an hour and then came back into the courtroom to declare that Joanne Little was not guilty.
Little was free, sort of. She was thrillingly famous for a while, going on a national speaking tour and declaring that she was going to dedicate her life to fighting racism, giving quotes like, I had no political awareness at all before this happened. I was just like any average 21-year-old girl. All I wanted to do was go out and party. She told the media that she was going to go to college and become a writer and expose more injustices in the prison system. But the prison system wasn't done with her. She had to go back and serve out the rest of her time for that breaking and entering charge. It must have been a bizarre letdown after the drama and celebrity of her trial. She was put in the women's prison in Raleigh, thankfully, where she received fan mail every day and spent her time reading, acting in the prison's drama program, and working as a typist. She was a good prisoner until she wasn't. A mere month before she was going to hear whether or not she got parole, she climbed over the prison's fence and escaped. She was caught all the way north in Brooklyn after a friend called the police and gave away her license number. Police chased her through the city at 70 miles an hour before catching her and extraditing her back to North Carolina, where she was given another six months to two years in prison. When she was finally, officially free in June of 1979, she moved to New York, got a job as a file clerk with the National Conference of Black Lawyers, studied for her cosmetology license, and told the press, I will prove that I can stay out of trouble. The thing was, it was just too much, this pressure to be perfect, to be a representative of civil rights, women's rights, and prison reform all at the same time. When there was a riot at the Raleigh Women's Prison, someone asked what she thought about it, hoping for some great, quotable feminist answer. All they got was a quotable one. That's what happens, said Joanne, when you get a bunch of horny women together. The problem was, said her defense lawyer later, that many people wanted Joanne to be ultimately one-dimensional. For example, women's rights groups wanted her to be, quote, a goddess on a pedestal, and when she didn't act like one, they got so disillusioned that they missed the real issues. They couldn't see the real human being who was suffering, the human being who couldn't get along in society, who couldn't stay out of jail because her talents were never encouraged. It's easy to see why Joanne was turned into a symbol. Her case illuminated so much about American society that was broken. It illuminated the host of horrors and discriminations that faced those who were poor, black, and female, especially in the South. It illuminated the realities of police brutality, of racial and sexual discrimination in America's prison systems, and of the endless specter of sexual assault that looms over all women. It even illuminated more complicated truths, like the fact that for every Joanne Little whose case catches the attention of the public and raises hundreds of thousands of dollars for a defense fund, there are a hundred similar cases that fall through the cracks. But for all the illuminating and symbolizing that happened with the Joanne Little case, one simple, messy fact was often left out of the rhetoric. The fact that Joanne was just a human. Today, Joanne would be about 66, though she's completely disappeared from the papers. 
1989, she was arrested in New York City and charged with a slew of petty offenses, driving a car with a stolen license plate, using false identification, giving a false report to a police officer, driving with a suspended license, possessing a straight razor, and possessing gambling paraphernalia. No, this wasn't the behavior of a goddess on a pedestal. But the thing was, Joanne had never claimed to be a goddess. Her claims had always been so much humbler than that. For example, sometimes she liked to write poetry, and when she was awaiting her trial for first-degree murder, she wrote a poem. The title of the poem says it all. I am somebody. It was the simplest and the most powerful declaration a person could make. I am somebody by Joanne Little. I may be down today, but I am somebody. I may be considered the lowest on earth, but I am somebody. I came up in low rent housing, sometimes lived in the slums, but I am still somebody. I read an article where a black youth was jailed. He stole some food, but got 15 to 20 years. He was somebody. I killed a white in self-defense, but the jury doesn't care. And when he came for me to prepare trial, he said, she deserves the chair. Every time, every hurt and pain I feel inside, Every time I pick up the morning news only to see my name on the front page, I begin to wonder. They make me feel less than somebody. But in the end, I will have freedom and peace of mind. I will do anything to help prove my innocence. Because of one important fact above all, I am somebody. That was actor Alex Taylor reading Joanne's poem. For more of her work, check out alextaylorActor.com. Thank you so much, Alex. That was really incredible. And an additional thank you to my newest patron, the very chill, very cool, but doesn't flaunt it, Suleika Paredes. Thank you so much. Everyone else, if you'd like to become a patron of the podcast, visit patreon.com slash criminalbroads. Or just leave a gushing review on your favorite podcast app and send me a message so I can say thank you in person. <laughs> oh, and check out Instagram.com slash criminal broads to see photos of Joanne Little herself. Okay, until next time, my friends. Next time, we'll be headed down south. And by south, I mean southern hemisphere south, not North Carolina south. And there we will be talking about a gal who's, let's just say, not quite as sympathetic as Joanne. Buckle your seatbelts. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. 
With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.